Thank you for tuning in to the Unjiggered Podcast. If you enjoy listening, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating on your podcast service of choice. Also, don't forget to like and tag us on Instagram at unjiggered underscore media. Thank you to everybody for listening, and now on with the show. You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week's guest is Pippa Guy, who's Tanqueray's UK ambassador, the author of Let's Get Physical, but most importantly, the first female senior bartender to be appointed to the Savoy's American Bar in over 100 years. So sit back and enjoy our chat with Pippa. Hi, my name is Pippa Guy. I am a whale enthusiast, ocean lover, former bartender and now Tanqueray brand ambassador. Thank you so much for your time, Pippa. How about you? I'm good. Thank you, darling. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. Feeling the lockdown vibes here in Scotland. Like, we are not there yet, but uh, you guys in the UK certainly are, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, in England. Oh, my apologies. Lockdown 2.0. There you go. Lockdown, the reboot no one wanted. <laughs> so, where are you from, Pippa? Um, originally, I was born in Banbury, which is kind of the middle of nowhere. Um, sort of halfway in between Oxford and Birmingham. Full on countryside, more sheep and cows than people. Oh, great. And uh, how was life there? Um, It was great. Like, I, as a youngster, was a big lover of the big outdoors. So I spent most of my sort of childhood growing up on the farm with the horses and the cows um, and absolutely loved it. Yeah, I I, I come myself from a very small town, like 750 people in the middle of nowhere. And yeah, uh, yeah, no, I I loved it because it's a very cool experience to get to be outdoors and experience the great countryside. Uh, Unfortunately, I think when you get to age uh, 16, 17, it starts to feel a bit tight, doesn't it? Yeah, it gets a bit boring as you get older, but nice to uh, have the option to be able to go back and visit now. Absolutely. So at what stage did you move out of there? Um, I moved out when I was 18, um, when I went to university. And what was that? Leeds. Woo. So, from what I understand, I've never been there, right? You've never but been? I've, I've never been to Leeds, but I only heard stories from Declan and the likes, and it sounds like it's this massive party hub, is it? <laughs> yeah, Leeds, uh, it's a pretty cool city. Um, it has, I think, four or maybe five universities now. So, there's like every sort of different career path going on there so you have like just this massive city of students from like all walks of life um so yeah it's it's a pretty busy pretty fun city for for that age group that sounds fabulous and what did you study there i studied sport and exercise science oh cool so all about being fit and stuff is it yeah it's been very useful for a for a career in bartending (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure there's something that we really don't strike very well, like uh, health and work balance here, is it? In our industry, something that we can certainly work on. Yeah, for sure. Cool. And at at some point you started bartending, didn't you, during your studies? Yeah, so I started in, um, or actually at the end of my first year, I applied for a job as a barback at Trio Bar and Grill, um, which was just around the corner from where I was living as a student. Um the bar manager at the time was Keith Motsey, actually, who uh, now runs Charles H. in Seoul. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I started there as a bar back, um, working part time as I was uh, continuing my studies. Cool. What, what was the motivation? Um, mostly just to be a bit more self-sufficient. 
um, and to spend a few more nights out, like, socialising, but to be earning money instead of spending money and drinking all the time. Yeah, that's that's a big thing. Like, a lot of people started like that, myself included, you know. It's, like, a great way to just get out, do something, get to know people, but also learn a little bit of cash on the side, right? Yeah, exactly. And you can be in that sort of, like, sociable environment and have lots of fun and, you know, build some great new friendships. But you can actually also, like, learn and earn money at the same time. I agree. And I also think that this is something that, uh, like... If you're a very focused individual, you don't really put a lot of attention to it. But I think like making sure you have fun at the beginning of your career is probably the most important bit, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's probably one of the things that has kept us all in it for such a long time is those aspects of it. Like being able to build such strong relationships with people. And um, like it was always a really important point for me to when I was like thinking about what I wanted to do when when I grew up so to speak, um, was something that I enjoyed. I didn't want to get stuck behind, you know, a desk Monday to Friday. Um, I wanted to do something that was dynamic, something that was fun, something that allowed me to travel. And, and this has just been perfect for me. Fabulous. And uh, how did that go for you? Like as a first bar experience, did you progress? Yeah, it was great. Um, so I moved onto the bar probably like maybe half a year or a year later and then moved to supervisor just as I was kind of coming towards the end of uh-huh. my degree. So I had a little bit more time. I think I did that in the summer. Um, okay. And then I left just before, just sorry, just after I graduated. I stayed for a few months as supervisor full time um, to save up some money to go away traveling and then went away traveling with my best friend shortly after. Oh, fabulous. Where did you go? We went all over the place. We flew to New Zealand and kind of like worked our way home from there, so to speak. Like, so oh went my to God, Australia, that awesome. um, Singapore, uh, Malaysia, and then kind of like all the way through like Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Myanmar, and then sort of came back through there. Must have been awesome, eh? Oh, it was incredible. Like, we'd worked so hard to save up money as well. Um, so we didn't need to work for the entire time. Obviously, like, the Asia is significantly cheaper than the UK. So you need less money to sort of live out there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but we just, it was, like, incredible. And I've been back to a few places, like Indonesia, I really loved. I've been back to Bali twice since. Um, and would love to go back to Vietnam as well. That's fabulous. It, that's one of the places that when I was in Asia, I didn't have the chance to visit Vietnam. Uh, but I heard it's outstanding, is it? Yeah, it's like so incredibly beautiful and varied. Like obviously the country's long and thin and the difference between like north and south um, is incredible. And then there's also like tropical kind of rainforesty um, part of central. So yeah, it was just an incredible country. So you went through the entirety of the country, basically? Yeah, worked away from the bottom to the top. That's amazing. That's a year well spent, I think, isn't it? Oh yeah, definitely. Great. So then, at some point, you come back to the UK, and what's the deal now? Like, what, what did you want to do? Um, I was kind of like not sure what I wanted to do. I didn't really want to come back to begin with, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but was like, okay, do I want to use my degree and do something maybe like a physio masters or something kind of sports related? Um, But I wasn't quite sure that that was exactly what I wanted Um, before committing to another two years of university and obviously the financial aspect of that as well. Mm -hmm. um, 
my previous employer, Oporto, got in touch and were looking for a bar manager. So I thought, well, actually, I need to start earning some money because, you know, I was broke at this point and living back <laughs> at my parents' house um, for a few weeks. And I was like, OK, we need to make something happen. Um, so I was like, OK, look, I really love the bar. Um, it was like a late night rock and roll dive bar. And I was like, do you know what? I'm not ready to like do anything too serious yet I'm like want to go and have some more fun and I'll figure it out when I get back to Leeds like I love the city so much um, and I had loads of friends there so I was like look this is a really good option for now and then I'll figure out what I want to do like for the rest of my life um, <laughs> when I get there. Cool so you went back into it in Leeds? Yeah back to Leeds. And how was that for you like coming back after because I think if you take a, such a big break and you start traveling and things like that, it's sort of like odd to get back into it. I don't know. Did you feel the same way or? Yeah, I guess it is. It like, you know, after living the life of traveling luxury for not, well, not luxury, but traveling and, and sort <laughs> of, you know, dossing around the world for about 11 months, it's very difficult to come back to like a structured atmosphere as well. But at the same time, it's also kind of nice because you do miss having like a permanent base after a while of being a bit of a nomad and living out of a backpack. Um, it's nice to have your own shower. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? and, and a reliable shower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, knowing that you can shower at the end of the day, is it? Yeah, it was really nice as well to like reconnect with all my friends. Like some of them I hadn't seen for for best part of a year or over a year. Um, and it was nice to have like those kind of solid sociable occasions back. My friend Natalie um, then also got engaged. So I was like really happy to kind of be back in, in everyone's life. Did, um, did coming back from such a big uh, year traveling change your perspective on things? Like in Leeds, did you make you reevaluate the city? I think um, traveling is just one of those things that changes your perspective on, on life as a whole. Um, you learn about people and places and cultures and it just like makes you a bit um, more rounded as a person. Obviously, we're in travel restrictions heavily at the moment um, and I feel bad for the for this sort of age group of people that are um you know leaving school or university that, that was would be what you'd want to go and do right now but that will reopen again um and i think like travel's so important to, like building who you are as a character like i highly highly recommend it that's great good to hear so you're back in leeds managing this uh rock and roll place you're having a lot of fun at what stage do you think okay, maybe it's time to move out from leeds um well i guess Declan and Joe Schofield probably found me before I went looking. Um, mm -hmm. I think that was the point where I'd been there for just over a year and, you know, it was a lot of late nights and stuff and I was starting to think, okay, maybe I'm ready to, to move on. Um, and their timing was really sort of perfect. They came up to Leeds to do a guest shift for uh, Leeds Loves Cocktails Festival. Okay. Um, and chatted about the Savoy and about the vintage menu. Um, and then they came to a whiskey party that I was hosting um, that night. And at some point when the three of us were dancing on the bar, yes, there are pictures, I'll send them to you, Michele. Um, Please do. <laughs> they, they obviously thought like, oh, she's, she's perfect for the American bar. Um, I think maybe that was 
more of an indication of how much they'd had to drink than how uh, suitable <laughs> my skills were, possibly. Um, but we we continued the conversation afterwards. Um, Declan asked me to apply, so I was like, yeah, okay, fine. Like, went for it, not ever thinking that it was like, going to actually happen. And then, like, two weeks later, he rang me. He was like, okay, um, you've got the job. Like, when can you move to London? And I was like, what? <laughs> That's incredible. That's so cool. And so then you moved to London. Yeah, so um, luckily it kind of tied in with my rent on my flat being, um, my contract being up. So I was like, uh, do you know what? Like, I can actually be there in two weeks and was a bit like gobsmacked that this was going to happen. Um, so yeah, It was meant to be, wasn't on, it? I mean, yeah, <laughs> maybe. Who knows? Yeah. So I went on holiday with my family a week later and then two weeks later I started at the Savoy. Boom, fantastic. And uh, how did that go for you? Any challenges that you had at the beginning? Um, it was terrifying, honestly. <laughs> um, I'd never been to the American bar before um, starting as a server. Mm -hmm. um, and the whole like prospect was quite daunting. It's like a whole category of people and guests um, that I'd never worked with. People at the bar were all so bloody good at their job. Um, and like, you know, there's a whole world of people that I just never engaged with before, um, to learning how to speak with guests, um, and to deal with that kind of style of service and that in-depth, um, amount of service and sort of things that you have to learn and do, um, was really daunting. I remember feeling like very much like on show, like on stage and being very like, um, self-conscious to begin with I'd also never really worn like heels before like I'd go to work <laughs> in like denim shorts and baggy t-shirts and converse um, and then the whole concept of like wearing a dress and heels and carrying like a silver tray was a bit like far out for me at that time <laughs> that's cool though like what I love about the American bar is that you get people from all sorts of backgrounds in there and you have people that are very, very like five star or people that have never worked anywhere else in five stars. But you also have people that are the exact opposite. And I like that the sort of like the American bar is this melting pot of different bartending styles, I think. I don't know. How do you feel about it? Yeah, 100%. Like all of the, the sort of different characters and different backgrounds. Um, London for me as well really opened my eyes to like how international the bar scene is. Um, obviously in Leeds it's like slightly less international there's a lot of sort of students and locals that that live there um whereas london is just like a complete melting pot of culture isn't it um never worked with so many italians before in my life <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's crazy especially in the bar industry there's so many of us it's surreal i, I really can't i really don't know why like that's the case but yeah it, <laughs> i'm it, really sad that my italian's not better as well Really? after you know years of working with many italians my swear words are great but my <laughs> conversational italian is, is practically none uh, well, aren't they the same thing like conversational italian <laughs> as well? i say no I, it's just lots of hand gestures isn't it indeed exactly exactly that's all you need cool so from the get-go you started to work on the floor as you mentioned Wait, did you have your eyes set on a bartending position at this stage or not really yeah, I was fully set on um, becoming a bartender at the Savoy. Um, I'm quite a stubborn character. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember being told before I moved there that like girls don't really work the bar there and they don't even have white jackets, etc. Mm -hmm. I think it was just head bartender had like the jacket with the, the black lapel. Um, mm -hmm. And then it was only the guys that wore jackets. Um, which was like probably one of the my favourite things 
that happened during the time that I was there and since I've left. Um, obviously, the American bar is currently closed, but up until it closed recently, the beginning of the summer, everyone now wears white jackets and trousers and stuff. The girls don't have to wear the blue dress anymore. Everyone wears the same uniform, um, which I think is like about time. Yeah, and I think this, um, I think this dress thing was uh, a bit weird. Yeah, like and the also, fact that you had the separate uniform for, like, they had completely different uniforms from male to female kind of thing, right? Yeah, it's just unnecessary, I think, in my opinion. Like, I understand why uniforms are still a thing. Um, and actually, like, you know, the the American bar, the white jacket is so iconic and beautiful, and um, until you're making a Bloody Mary, um, that I think it's just really important that <laughs> why shouldn't everyone be wearing that? Everyone who's a part of that bar is a part of its history, so everyone should be wearing that jacket yeah very much so i agree and i think uh, that uh, the fact that you managed to change that is actually quite remarkable isn't it yeah i think um i think it's just about sort of encouraging everyone to uh raise their voice and have an opinion and have a seat at the table as well and i think once i started doing it the rest of the girls were like do you know what yeah you're right like we we all want this and uh, how did you go about uh, changing the system essentially because you wanted to have equal opportunities, right? And I, I can tell you how I felt from, from the other end as well. Because I think that looking back at it, I think that for some reason we had uh, some sort of unrealistic expectations for female bartenders. And I think that when I was in it, I didn't actually realize it. But for instance, like, uh, like I believe that uh, Alice is a great example. I think Alice is absolutely great, right? And she's probably one of the best people I've ever worked with uh, in terms of like colleagues and passion they had for the place where they were at. But uh, when I was speaking cocktails with her, for some reason, like say if she didn't know the recipe of a hanky-panky, I would be like, why does she not know the recipe of a hanky-panky we're working here, right? While if one of my male colleagues who was a barbeck would have the same issue, I'd be like, yeah, don't worry, still get it. And so I think that there was this like subconscious double standard. Like, what do you think? Um, I think it's really interesting that you say that, actually. Um, I think for just a long time, the Savoy was like a bit of a boys' club, wasn't it? The the only girls, when I started, the girls were all hosts, apart from Alice, who was on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you just you get used to your surroundings, don't you? And it's really funny because um, I remember when I started, you were a senior bartender, weren't you? Yeah. Um, and like would watch you on the bar endlessly and be like a little bit terrified of you because I was like he's so good and you're like you're a bit terrifying because you are quite strict which is like good you need to be and like hold people accountable to keep the standards high which is great and I think you left before I became junior bartender yes indeed yeah um but actually like for me the other night when we were working the last dance event um and you and I were on the bar together and we had such a great time and you said to me at the end um it's so nice to work behind the bar with you I wish we could have had more time to do this at the Savoy and that was like such a gratifying feeling for me I think like um I as a junior bartender like really seeked all of your approval so much um and it was just like it was a really cool moment for me oh really oh that- to be honest, you didn't need it. Like you've done such an excellent job. Like looking at the incredible potential that you had and the way that you you went about achieving your potential, it's absolutely phenomenal. You should be proud of yourself. 
I mean, you, you change the status quo in one of the biggest bartending institutions in the world. I think, I think kudos to you, right? Yeah, I think um, it was difficult as well. Like there was a lot, obviously, when I made Senior Bartender, I found it really conflicting because there was so much press. I was at that time doing interviews with different newspapers, like pretty much every week for like two months or something like that. Um, and at the time I was like really... Um, I don't know, a bit daunted by it all, obviously, because it was like so sudden and that sort of thing. It never really happened to me. I'd never had people pay me that much attention. But also I was a bit like, why is everyone just focusing on the fact that like I'm a girl? Like nobody was focusing on like nobody was asking me about the drinks that I'd created for the menu or like, you know, like the aspects of my job that I'm good at. You know, like, all of the attention was literally just on the fact that I was a girl. And I was like, you know, you're you're all saying this is a great achievement. But, like, to make a senior bartender at the Savoy is an achievement for anyone, regardless of gender. Like, it just, I found it really conflicting. No, I can see your point, and I agree with you. I just think that uh, the, the reason why the focus was there, it was because of the fact that you sort of set a precedent that was not... I wouldn't say achieved, but done by anybody else before to a certain extent. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and I do understand it. Um, I think it also like kind of just didn't really help my like imposter syndrome, I guess, of being like, am I just here because I'm a girl? Like, um, do people really think like, am I actually any good at my job, or you know, is this just because this is a gender thing? No, and I can see that. But I think that the way to see it is that uh, you are purely there on merit. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been there. And I think your track record proves the fact that you were there on merit and, and it, you achieved more than a lot of other people achieved in your position. I mean, talking of such achievements, for instance, uh, your cooperation with Coca-Cola, I mean, that's that's phenomenal. I mean, to, for me to be in Singapore and to be able to buy a bottle of Coca-Cola that's Pippa guy name on it, I mean, how amazing is that? <laughs> I actually find yeah. your Coca. I actually find your Coca Colas in um, in uh, the middle of nowhere in China. I was in Wuhan with yeah. uh, Roberto Bava, and uh, they we went into a cocktail bar uh, just before my shift. And uh, the bartender there gave us this twist on a, on a rum and coke uh, was one of his drinks, and he was using your Coca Cola. And I thought this is so cool. No way. <laughs> yeah, it was That's absolutely. Phenomenal. I have pictures. I remember, I'm gonna send like... them over to you. Maybe maybe it was you that sent me that picture. I remember somebody um, n- not too long after it had launched. So uh, it launched two years ago um, and it was supposed to only be Western Europe to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. And like maybe two or three months later, maybe it was Federica actually, somebody sent me a picture of a fridge in like an off license in Hong Kong and it was just <laughs> full of my Coca-Cola and I was like what is going on cool so for those who don't know let's talk about it so first of all <laughs> what is it this Coca-Cola we're talking about um so Coca-Cola did a collaboration with five bartenders and the project was called Signature Mixes mm-hmm. um so the idea was to take coca-cola as it was and make like an elevation of it um with the aim to be mixed with dark spirits so you know rums whiskey aged tequilas etc um and take the coke like flavor profile um and make a new flavor obviously you know they did like cherry and vanilla and mango and whatever before but they wanted us to do something a little bit more complex so um 
ours was spicy notes was was the name of it um so it had like spicy elements of sort of jalapeno and ginger but it also had um rosemary lime and jasmine um so it's a bit more of a like bartender um Mm -hmm. version i guess a bit more flavor and complexity um how was the process of developing a flavor of coca-cola um so it was a two-day workshop really that we did underneath the former bar three, um, Max Venning's old bar in Spitalfields, and mm-hmm. they basically built for us like uh, one side of the room was just covered in like fresh ingredients and like oils, distillates, like dried powders and fresh ingredients. Yada yada, like every kind of ingredient. Like honestly, it was like a bartender's playground. If you'd walked in and saw that in the back of your like bar area you'd probably just like faint it was so cool um so then we were given like the base syrup of coca-cola um and then could add things to it and and sort of play around with it um and that took us like a full day i think we're doing it for like eight hours in the end um we started in pairs as well so i was paired up with adriana and everyone was in pairs Mm -hmm. to begin with and then people kind of broke off and went into like doing individual recipes after that. Um, Adriana and I did as well. Um, obviously, this is a question that we get asked quite a lot. Why is your the only one that has two collaborators on it um, mm-hmm. and everyone else has one? Um, and actually, just the answer is the one that we made together was just the best recipe. Um, we both made individual ones and they just weren't as good. Mm hmm. That's awesome. And uh, so now you have a Coca-Cola with your name on it. Yeah. That's I know. Awesome. And do you know what's really funny about this as well? Uh-huh. So when they told us about the label and that they wanted our signature on it as well, because it was signature mixes, um, mine like looks like it's been written by a child. <laughs> because <laughs> they were like, can you can you like uh, draw your signature out and like send it over to us in a PDF document, but make sure that it's really clear. So they were talking about like the quality of the document that we sent over, but I thought they meant our signature. So I was like, <laughs> like printing my name. So, no way. so, so now this is on like every single bottle of Coca-Cola signature mixes hey, around the world. And it looks like a child wrote my signature, but it does kind of, I haven't actually told anyone that before, but it does oh, make capitals. me giggle every time I see it. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Cool. And uh, I mean, this uh, sets us up for the next bit, being uh, you being the queen of fizz. Uh, talk to us about uh, your book. How did that go? So first of all, w- what's the name of the book and how did you go about writing it and why? Um, so the book is called Let's Get Physical. Physical with an F. Um, love a good pun. So mm-hmm. very characterful. Um I guess that came around, so DK, the publishing company, got in touch with me in January 2018, mm-hmm. so nearly three years ago, my gosh, um, and sent me an email, actually, to my work email and asked if I would be interested on collaborating on a book with them. Um, I tried to delete this email because I showed it to my mum and I was like, well, this is definitely scam, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> she was like, no, you should probably just like, I don't know, email back, ask for some more information. Um, so we only you know, a few emails back and forwards. Um, they told me sort of what the plan was. They wanted someone to collaborate 
on a book with them about sparkling cocktails or fizzy cocktails. So I was like, yeah, this sounds interesting. Definitely, like, when I moved to the American bar, my love of sort of champagne and all things fizz um, stems from there. I remember on my first night in Nereus, um, our former colleague, who's, who's now bar manager at the Barclay Bar and Terrace, was like, darling, we're going for champagne. And I was like, well, I don't think I've ever drank champagne before. But I was like, you know, so terrified of everyone that I was like, oh, yeah, of course, I, I can drink I, I champagne. Must, yeah. um, and you know Nereus very well. He's, he's just not an easy guy to say character. no to. Yes. <laughs> Luckily, his uh, expensive taste in champagne has passed over. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so when they approached me, I was a bit like hesitant at first, um, cause this is shortly after. So in October, 2017 was when the American bar won world's best bar. Mm-hmm. So we were like so, so busy that Christmas and into January and it was not stopping. So I was like, am I mental to take on another project that's going to last, you know, the best part of, of a year? Um, and it's going to be like a huge amount of work plus um, we had loads of sort of guest shifts and loads of like fun cool stuff packed into that year already my schedule was already super busy so I was a little bit like hesitant to take on more work on top of that Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it was my mum that was like you know opportunities like this don't just sort of present themselves to people all the time like yeah okay you might be really busy but it's not these sort of things don't wait so you should just go for it so I was like okay sod it I'll do it cool and so how how did that go like what was the idea behind the book or did you have any specific thing you wanted to talk about Um, so the idea around the book it was really aimed at consumers so like general public not bartenders it was not supposed to be like an in-depth nerdy book it was supposed to be um something like easy and replicable something that you could you know give your prosecco loving aunt or uncle for christmas and that they would be able to follow along the recipes and and make and enjoy all the all of the recipes in there um so i wanted to make sure there was lots of classics in there I didn't realise, like, how many classics actually have champagne in. Like, obviously, you start thinking about, like, you know, the champagne cocktail, French 75. Once you actually get into it, there are so many drinks that use fizz. Um, So I had mostly, like, the classic section was the biggest. And then each of those would have, like, small twists on um, of my recipes. And then there's, I think, maybe five to ten recipes that were just purely my creations at the end. That's awesome. And so the whole process, how long did it last? So from start to finish, January um, was when they first sort of got in contact with me and it was published in November. Um, the actual writing, etc., probably took sort of seven months, maybe. Um, and then there was a lot of sort of editorial back and forth. Um, three days of photo shooting to get all the photos done um, and then a little bit another day of sort of like graphic design for all the pictograms and and other sort of um, little bits and then yeah once it was sort of finished and completed two months of waiting and then in November it came out. That's awesome. So this you must be so proud of it. It's such a huge achievement. Yeah, I like I am super proud of it. I everyone's always been like so like when are you going to do the next one? I was like never again. It was <laughs> like when 
when I thought about how much work it was going to be, I was like, I know this is going to be a lot. If you triple that, that's probably how much it actually was. <laughs> cool. So you've done your book, you've got your Coca-Cola collaboration, and then at some point um, you decided to move on from the Savoy. What was the thought process behind it? So, yeah, I left the Savoy 5th of September last year, so um, just over a year ago. I think at that point, um, obviously, Eric had left as head bartender and Maxime had started and I'd been working with Maxime for about a year. And there was just nowhere further for me to progress at that point. I was ready to take on more and to be able to sort of influence my own style. Um, obviously, Max's head bartender was only just sort of starting his career there, so I knew he wasn't going to leave anytime soon. Um, so I thought it's time to look further afield. And at the point that I left, I wasn't entirely sure what that was going to be, what that was mm. going to look like. Um, and I'd waited, I, I'd sort of discussed with Declan at the beginning of the summer how I felt and what I wanted to do. We looked into a few options and nothing had sort of piqued my interest. Um, so I was kind of ready to also regain a bit more of like work-life balance. Mm. Um I think you can also attest to this that the Savoy is an amazing place to work, but it takes a heck of a lot of your personal life as well. Mm -hmm. um, and the commitment and level of commitment that people show is outstanding, but it does mean a lot of sacrificing of your personal life. Um, so I was quite happy to leave without anything sort of lined up so that I could sort of reclaim a bit of time, spend some time with my family and the friends that I haven't seen for the last few years and, and get a bit of my sort of health and mental wellness back as well. Um, I, I had quite a few sort of like consultancies and other events lined up until Christmas. Um, so I knew financially that I would be okay to earn the same as, um, if not more, than what my wage was up until mm -hmm. Christmas, which also gave me a few months to sort of sleep and readjust and figure out what, what I wanted to do come the new year. And uh, what what uh, what happened in the new year? Yes, yeah, so I started to chat with Jonathan Lynn and Harrison Ginsberg um, from New York in November, mm -hmm. um, and we sort of figured everything out. Um, they had plans for this beautiful new opening of a bar with a small team so I have a US passport so I'm very lucky that moving to New York was a very easy option for me mm. um, and didn't involve quite as much of this sort of organization and visas etc um, so I moved to New York in January this year um, which seems like both a very long time ago and also not very long at all <laughs> um, to go and work with them so I was there actually total two months exactly door to door um sadly obviously we never got to open the bar we were probably about a month or six weeks away from getting it open um when the coronavirus pandemic sort of really set in um and at that time i chose to come home uh to be with my family whilst the world sort of figured out what was going to happen this is uh, such a, an incredible time, is it? Like uh, the amount of people that had to do some major readjustments due to the pandemic is, is surreal. And, and if I look at uh, some of the colleagues that I had the chance to work with and, you know, some industry leaders and people who are extremely qualified at their job, the fact that they had to pretty much replan their whole lives due to this is, is, is incredible, is it? 
Yeah, it's it's really mental. It's been such a tough year for so many people. I think, um, on a personal note, I never would have expected of myself to be unemployed for seven months. Um, that thought, if you'd said that to to me a few years ago, you'd have been like, "Oh no, it's crazy! Like all of our jobs are so secure. The world is is thriving. The cocktail scene is is booming. It's amazing." Um, and yeah, it's been it's been a really crushing year for so many people, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent, no question about it. And I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the industry bounces back come January, February, when the thick of it will be gone. I think I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we are like such a resilient industry, aren't we? Um, people are hardworking. Um, and I think everyone's learned this year as well that supporting each other is such a such a key factor to us all getting through this together. Um, I do genuinely feel positive about what will happen. There will be an end to this. Um, I know it's incredibly anxiety-inducing, whilst we don't know what that is just yet. Um, there will be an end to it and people will be able to come back and, and hopefully everyone will be able to get their livelihoods back on track. I agree. Cool. So we talked about uh, you coming back from the US, but uh, what what is what is the future? What are your future plans, and uh, what's on the, on your project books now? So I'm now the UK brand ambassador for Tanqueray, which is amazing. It's such a like refreshing silver lining for me. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I feel incredibly lucky and grateful to have not only just found a job during the pandemic, but a really good one with a brand that I love. Um, it's doing something completely different as well. So I'm learning a lot and being challenged in different ways. Um, you know, obviously it wasn't my plan A for this year, but it's, you know, cool that you can have plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D even ruined and still find something incredible at the end. Um, and I think that's possibly like one of the things that I've been trying to tell people the most this year, like, have backup plans and don't be don't be sad sometimes when things don't go the way that you wanted them to you can still come out with an amazing result absolutely and if we look at it i think it was the same thing at the beginning of your career right when all of a sudden like this opportunity for you to work at the savoy just appears in front of you and and we just said probably it was just the right time right it was just supposed to be because of the timings and everything i think this uh tanker opportunity was just supposed to be right it was just yeah. it was just meant to be it was just in there for you and just the path that you went there is not the traditional path because we're not in a traditional situation aren't we <laughs> not in a traditional year yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. no, i agree yeah um i think one of the things that i'm most grateful for as well is that you know, I left the Savoy because I was looking for being able to balance, you know, a job that I love and enjoy with a life that I love and enjoy and try and get that a bit more 50-50. Um, and obviously, like, this Tancray job has, has been amazing for me on so many other levels. Um, I've rejoined a netball team since I left, like, Leeds five and a bit years ago um I haven't been able to play competitive netball which is super exciting I've now got more time on my hands to surf with my sister um and like spend more time with my family and my friends and like I'm so grateful on so many different levels for like everything that's now coming out of of what's happened so like sometimes you know the saying when one door shuts another one opens maybe sometimes the door shuts for a reason 
Uh, that's probably true. Um, you have had a very good track book of uh, dealing with uh, unforeseen challenges ahead of you and trying to shape positions around you. Uh, how do you see this position right now? Do you see any challenges? Because it's you're moving to the other side of the bar to an extent, like by being to a the dark ambassador. side. <laughs> it's the dark side <laughs> of the bar. <laughs> do you see any challenges with that, or? Uh... Yeah, for sure. Like you know, trying to learn. Um, how everything works from the other side is, is always interesting, doesn't it? But I think it also gives you a unique perspective on how you can function within a brand. I think there's a reason why brand ambassadors are pretty much always employed former bartenders um, because of the skill set you have to bring to the job. Um, another part of my job is also taking over the world-class program for GB, mm -hmm. um, along with my colleague and housemate Joe from the Beaufort Bar. Um, so we're both super excited about that as well. Uh, it gives it like another sort of aspect to our job that also kind of keeps us really tied to the, the bartending community and, and the people that are sort of up and coming as well. Um, I think I'm really fortunate to have received like amazing mentorship from the people that I've worked with, um, Eric and Declan and Joe Schofield, um, who kind of still has me tucked under his wing. Um, so it's really cool that I think we're both really looking forward to keeping that connectivity with the bar community in the UK. That's absolutely fantastic to hear. Cool. So just a couple of closing notes. Uh, if you could uh, give any suggestion to younger individuals trying to join this industry, what would you say to them? Um, be brave. It's a confusing looking sort of world that we live in at the moment. Be brave, like work on yourself, work on your skills and stuff and, and reach out to other people in the community as well. Um, whilst we're all on lockdown, I think everyone's, you know, really trying to sort of polish up on their skills, create menus and like, you know, keep themselves busy. So interact with the community around you and, and check in on people as well. Great, cool. And a very final question I asked to everyone. If you could choose your la very last drink, what would that be? Ooh, um, like last like drink this is, ever? Like, am yeah, I this dying? is like, uh, yeah, this is like a, a day before being executed kind of thing. <laughs> um, ooh, I really love uh, Bollinger Le Grand Donnet. Champagne. Oh my god! So yeah. probably like a bottle of that. Like, <laughs> sounds phenomenal. Does it have to be a single drink, like bottle and a straw? Yeah, you can choose. <laughs> Doesn't that. matter that if I'm hungover anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. We had a guy in this podcast trying to cheat the system, saying he would have a corpse survivor number two, so then he can come back to life. But very <laughs> clever. Yeah, that was very clever. Yeah, cool people. It was amazing to talk to you, and thank you very much for your time. Nice to chat to you. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Pippa. We are unjiggered underscore media on Instagram and you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.